Hey guys, welcome to the shit show of my 20s. On this episode, I spoke with Rachel, and Rachel has an incredible story from retiring at 27 years old from her job as a financial advisor to being a full-time real estate investor. She's also the author of two books. Her latest book is Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. Before that, she wrote Money Honey, which is a bestseller, and I love the name. It's Money Honey, a guide to get your financial shit together. So it goes perfectly well with this podcast. We talk about how she invests in real estate, what she looks for, what she looks for when it comes to tenants, location, and how she saves for her down payments. We also talk about money mindset, how she self-published her books, and how she was able to get on the bestseller list. I hope you guys enjoy listening. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. I'd love to know more about you. Tell me about your story. Yeah, thanks, Sophia. I'm so excited to be on. So um, there, I'm a lot of things. I am a former financial advisor. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a real estate investor with over 35 rental units. And what me, what most people find most intriguing about me is that last year at age 27, I quit my job and retired. And I am now living off over $10,000 per month in passive income. So that is my high-level summary. <laughs> awesome. And what was that process like to retire at 27? Uh, Definitely weird. I never thought that I would be retired so soon. My initial plan actually with real estate investing was to buy a single family house uh, once per year for 15 years, all on 15-year mortgages. So then in 15 years, I was going to retire. So my timeline could me at in the 30s, like my mid-30s when I figured I would retire. But then once we started investing in real estate, things just happened a lot more quickly. You know, we created other passive income streams. Um, but the process of quitting was still difficult because, you know, we have such expectations as a society for someone to get a really successful corporate career and succeed that way. And I think we're finally starting to sort of change the definitions of success as a society. But I definitely had a lot of fear of what other people would think of me when I quit my job, because walking away from a really lucrative corporate finance career seems like a crazy thing to do. So it definitely took me longer than I thought to actually quit. But once I finally went through with it, I have really, really loved the way my life has changed. And what did the process look like for you to save to buy your first property? Yeah, so I uh, went to college. I went to Center College, which costs 40 grand a year. And I was really scared of taking out student loans. And I knew I was going to have to pay for it all on my own. So I started selling Cutco cutlery. Have you heard of Cutco by any chance? Okay, so Cutco is knives and it is a sales job. And um, it was the first job I'd been exposed to where the harder you work, the more money you make. So, you know, here I was, a high school senior. I'd been working at American Eagle or whatever, making like $200 every two weeks. And I was like, well, that's not going to cut it. But once I started learning about Cutco, I was really excited. I started selling knives. (laughs) My parents were not exactly happy about that, but I did it anyways. And I paid my way through school. I like set sales records and one trips and paid completely for college and graduated in 2013 um, completely debt free, which is one of the things I am definitely the most proud of because I worked my butt off for that. Um, so I, I came out of school without any debt and then 
my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, Andrew, we didn't know each other at the time, but he had also graduated from college without debt because he used his military benefits because he's a veteran. So we both kind of came into the relationship without debt. We were both, you know, good savers, just decent savers. We weren't doing anything crazy. And I wasn't making that much money either. But it didn't take that long for us to save up a little chunk of money to invest. I wasn't making some crazy amount of income. My first job after college was only $32,000. But we were both financially responsible. We didn't have debt. We were saving. So it didn't take long for us to save up a little chunk of money to buy our first property with. Also, the housing prices in Louisville, Kentucky, where we were, are very low. So this isn't something somebody could do in Manhattan or Washington, D.C. or San Diego, right? Like the first duplex we found and that we bought was $100,000. Mm-hmm. Super cheap. Yeah. So we had to come up with twenty grand, which was a 20% down payment. And that was very doable for us at the time. Wow. Those are really nice house prices. <laughs> it's crazy. They are, yeah. It's easy to get invested. Anywhere in the Midwest is like a great place to invest. And how important do you think it is to find someone um, in your relationship that matches your spending patterns? Oh, so important. And that's such a good question. I don't get asked that often, but I love that you asked me that. Um, I, you know, coming into my relationship, I had so many fears about money, you know, wanting to be financially independent. Really, I'm, I've always been a control freak, so I just always wanted to be like independent with my own money. I never saw myself joining finances at all. I was like very against that. And it's so funny because, of course, now we have everything is joint, everything we own together. But that came about because Andrew and I had so many different conversations about money. I mean, even before we got engaged and throughout our entire engagement, we had conversations about you know, how are you raised? Like, what are your money beliefs and your fears growing up? How did your parents manage money? Like, how do you manage money? And when we first met, I was probably like frugal to a fault. Like I was too frugal and I wouldn't spend money on, you know, fun things. Like I was just kind of a monk and I never did anything. And then my husband was probably a little bit more spendy than I am, but we weren't that far off. And in fact, I think we complement each other well because he gets me to feel okay with spending money on experiences. And I kind of taper his spending down a little bit. So, you know, we've had a lot of conversations and it's worked out for the best. But yeah, it's definitely important to communicate and be on the same page and to have a plan together. And how did you guys meet? Um, on Plenty of Fish. Have you heard of that one? Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that that is the sketchiest dating app. And I always tell people, like, try to stay away from that one. But then I'm a hypocrite because I did meet my husband on it. (laughs) Do you remember what the opening line was? I don't think so. But here's a funny story is I had been going on dates and I went on this date with this one guy who was 6'3", and I'm 5'6", and I wore my, like, tallest heels and everything, but I still remember being on a date and being like, this is awkward, like, I can't even reach this guy, you know? <laughs> like, we had a first kiss at the end of the date, and I remember being like, oh, this isn't going to work, which is so stupid. But after that, I filtered out anybody that was, like, above 6'2", or something, from my search results, and Andrew is 6'6". Wow. <laughs> he didn't filter me out or or whatever and he found me and messaged me and I don't remember what he said but we hit it off very quickly and now I'm married to somebody who's a foot taller than me so that's awesome yeah and what traits do you look for when you purchase a property 
There's a couple, there's two main metrics that I, I think are the most important. I mean, besides location, like there's other things, but in terms of quantifiable metrics, I look for two things. First is cash flow. So my first goal when I was buying my first rental property is I wanted to make two or three hundred dollars per unit. That was kind of my goal. I don't know where that number came from, but that's what I felt like was going to make it worth it to me. Um, and that's profit. So that's, you know, your re- revenue minus your expenses. So $200 in cash flow or profit per month. The second metric is something called your cash on cash ROI. So cash on cash return on investment. This basically gives you your ROI based on how much money you put into it. At the time I was thinking, okay, well, if I can, if I get an eight or 10% ROI, then why not just put my money in the stock market, right? Because you could get 8 or 10% in the stock market over the long run. So my thought was, okay, I want to make at least 12%. Otherwise, since then, my investments have gotten larger. My requirements have increased a little bit. Now it's nice if I can make $500 per unit and get like a 20% ROI. But, you know, start small. You can always increase your requirements later. And what was the first property that you purchased? It was that duplex. It was the one we got for a hundred grand and we put 20% down. It was really great. I always think it's like the best investment we'll have ever made because even when we first bought it, it was cash flowing 500 bucks per month already in profit. And now um, several years later, we've made improvements. We've increased the rents. Now we profit about $800 per month from that one property. And do you only buy multi-units? Do you buy single family um, we own single family, but we haven't bought them for the purpose of being investment properties. So when my, you know, now husband, then boyfriend and I first met, he owned a different house and then eventually we moved into a different house together. So we kept his first house and kept it as a rental and we've been renting it out ever since. So that's the only reason we do have a couple single families. Um, in general, I do prefer multifamily because the great thing is that if there's one tenant that can't pay or that's behind or if one unit is just vacant, you have all these other tenants and units that are still paying. So it can help you make sure that you're able to pay your expenses every month. It's a little bit less volatile. And what usual um, price range do you look at for the properties? Is there like a certain price range you like to stay within? You know, not necessarily. I mean, it really comes down to whatever I can afford at the time. So, you know, if I have $20,000 in savings, that means I can afford a $100,000 purchase price. Normally with investment properties, lenders do require that you put 20 to and do an FHA loan or a VA loan or put, you know, 10% down and pay PMI. But generally there's no options like that for investment properties. So I kind of just go based on how much I have in savings. And what do you look for in tenants? Um, we do, we use Cozy. So C-O-Z-Y. And that's an online platform. It's free for landlords to use. And we do all of our screening through there. So we do a credit check. We do a background check. Our requirements are different for each property, you know, like for the house, the really big single family house where the rent is $1,900 a month, we require a 650 credit score. 
for the duplex where the rent is like $800 a month for the unit, we require a 600 credit score. So it's a little bit different for each property, but you know, definitely going in, make sure you do have a credit score requirement, make sure you know what you're looking for. Um, we also check references. So we'll do their employment verification. We'll call past landlords as references and make sure there's no red flags. And is there anything you wish you would have known before you started investing? Um, we've made so many mistakes along the way. So, and I'm still learning, honestly, every time I put a new tenant in, I'm revising and updating the lease because something weird has happened. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I need to make sure I'm covered on that end. Um, one of the worst things that has happened is we bought this property and we were, it was vacant and we were renovating it. So it was totally vacant. We had contractors doing work. This was like right after we closed on the property, had ordered appliances to be delivered and we had ordered a security system and things like that. So everything was there. And one night or one morning I got a call from our contractor and he was like, Hey, I have bad news. Somebody broke in last night. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And, and we had about 10 or 15 grand worth of appliances sitting there. So I was like, are the appliances still there? And he was like, yes. And I was like, thank goodness. Because I guess these were just, you know, teenagers that came in and stole whatever they could carry. So they stole these microwaves and they stole some tools. And then ironically, they stole the security system that we had just purchased (laughs) and they did some damage. So it really wasn't the worst. I think it was about a thousand dollars in damage, but it's just a lesson learned the hard way. You know, you have to protect your assets and that means protecting them physically. That means when you close on a property, you get your butt over there the same day and install cameras and install a security system. So it's some of these things that I've learned seem so obvious in hindsight, but you know, I learned them the hard way. So hopefully somebody else listening can um, learn from my mistakes. (laughs) And what is it like being an out of state landlord? How do you manage your properties from far away? Yeah, this is pretty new for us. We're only a month in, but so far so good. Um, we had a couple bad experiences with property managers, so we kind of decided to take a little break from that. Um, and basically what we've done is just try to put tons of different people in place. So rather than entrusting one person with every single job, like to me, that's risky because if they work out, then you're kind of screwed. So we have a different person for lawn care. We have a different person for pest control, cleaning, um, all the different things. Andrew and I are still managing as much as we possibly can remotely, but for anything that we need to have a trusted person on site, um, my parents are helping us out. And if we didn't have that option, we would go back to find a property management company. And what are some states that you recommend investing in? I think anywhere in the Midwest. I mean, Kentucky has been a really great area to invest. I've heard the same about Ohio and that Ohio is really reasonable. I've heard the same about um, Georgia, like some of the suburbs around Atlanta. And that's not necessarily the Midwest, but I think anywhere in the Midwest where housing prices are really reasonable, I think that's always a great place to invest. And what do you look for in the area that you invest in? Like, is there certain traits that you look for in the location? 
Yeah, so there's different areas. And um, what I look for might not be the same as what somebody else looks for. So I have investor friends in Louisville who invest in the West End, which is more of a rundown area. There's more crime, but the properties are so cheap, so they can invest there and make a lot and a lot of money. Um, but I personally, like, I just want to feel safe. I want to, you know, be in areas like I'm going to have to go to these places personally and sometimes pick up rent. So for me as a, as a young female, you know, I have to keep my safety in mind. So I just try to look for locations where I feel safe in, where the crime rates are lower, things like that. And again, that's going to be different for everybody. And in terms of like what's happening right now, what do you suggest in terms of income diversification? Yes, I love this concept. So I'm so glad you asked. Um, uh, you know, some, something I disagree with, everyone always thinks like having a full-time salary job means you're, you have job security and you have good, secure, stable income. And I disagree with that because if you are 100% dependent on a single source of income, what do you do if that income source gets taken away or reduced or you get laid off? I don't, I don't find anything safe or secure in that personally. And that's where the concept of income diversification comes. Um, the, the idea is to have as many different sources of income as possible. So in other words, would you rather have one $100,000 income source or would you rather have 10 different $10,000 income sources? Because if you have the latter and one of those goes away, you're still making 90 grand. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a lot safer to diversify your income in that way. Um, that's what my husband and I have done. So we have four income streams now. And the good thing is, is right now our rental income is obviously very impacted. Um, you know, I would say only about 50% of our tenants are able to pay rent right now because of what's going on. And the good thing about having these other income streams is that I'm not in a total panic and trying to figure out what to do because even with the rental income significantly decreased, we still have all these other things to offset it. So we're doing okay. And I think it's so important to set yourself up that way and to have that income diversification. And what are your other sources of income? So I have, so we have the rental income, I have my royalty income from my two books. Um, so for example, in February, I just had my first $7,000 month in book uh, royalties, which was really exciting. And then we have a print on demand business slash platform, which we're making maybe a couple hundred bucks a month from that. So like nothing substantial. And then I just um, created a fourth income stream. So I created my first online money management course where it's pre-recorded videos and I'm going to basically be releasing it four times a year and making kind of recurring income that way. And can you talk a little bit about your books? What are your books about? What was that process? Yeah, like I have two best-selling books about financial literacy. So the first one I wrote in 2017, it's called Money Honey, a simple seven-step guide for getting your financial shit together. And it is a sassy, fun book on money management. Um, so, you know, I had this epiphany where my family and friends were coming to me for financial advice, and I wondered why they were or learning on their own. And then I realized, oh yeah, money is boring and intimidating and overwhelming and complex. So how can I take this topic and make it fun and sassy and 
funny and simple. And so that's where I started writing Money Honey. And it has been more successful than I could have ever thought possible. It has resonated with female millennials. It now has over 500 five-star reviews on Amazon. So I'm really, really happy with that and how that went. And then recently, I just um, launched my second book, which is called Passive Income Aggressive Retirement. And that was released last year in November of 2019. And that is all about passive income, you know, how I was able to retire early. I outlined 28 different passive income models and basically show you how you can start creating passive income. And how did you come up with the phrase money, honey? You know, I get asked that and I, I even have a hard time remembering, but I just wanted something fun and sassy and rich bitch was already taken. (laughs) So (laughs) at some point I came up with the idea of money, honey, and you kind of tested it out and did some market research and people loved it. So it's kind of stuck with me ever since. And now I kind of call myself money, honey, Rachel. And what was the process like for you to write a book? Were you writing every day? What was your plan? Um, it's funny you ask, I wish I had this like amazing daily ritual that I could tell you that I did, but I had no process. It was completely random. Like there was no thought put into it. Um, I remember first writing money, honey. And at first when I sat down, the words came pouring out of me and I wrote the first 5,000 words in like a single weekend or something like that. And then of course, as you keep going, the momentum dies off. Actually at one point I quit writing money, honey, and it had nothing to do with like how hard it was to write but it was more so some of the internal thoughts I had and the fears that I had I was at this point convinced that I was a crappy writer and the book was going to be embarrassing and that I was going to be humiliated if I went through with it so that's kind of what I was telling myself I was like who am I to write this book you know what am I even doing so I quit writing. I literally was like, I'm, I'm done. I'm not doing this. And then a few months later, I sat down for lunch with a coworker who's a dear friend of mine and told her about the book I had started. And she was like, Rachel, what are you thinking? You have to keep writing this book. It sounds amazing. She was like, that is the imposter syndrome talking. Do not let the imposter syndrome win out. And she was so right. I didn't know what it was at the time, but it was this feeling of being a fraud and questioning myself and questioning my credibility. Um, in the end, I basically, the only reason I went through with it is because I basically told myself, Hey, if I can just help one person, it will be worth it to me. That's all I ask. So I kind of got, got back into gear, finished writing the book and the entire process took about nine months. And what was the process like putting it out there? Did you self publish it? Did you go to a publisher? So I self-published both books. Um, I have lots of thoughts on this. I I truly think that a first-time author should definitely self-publish. I was really surprised when I started researching this because I figured if I could get a traditional publishing deal, deal, they're going to do all the marketing and the promotion and the hard work, and it's going to be a huge success. Well, it turns out that's not the way it works. Actually, when you traditionally publish, you are still responsible for 95% of the marketing and the promotion. They do very, very little for people. So I here I was wondering why I would give up literally 85% of my royalty, because that's the split. As an author, when you traditionally publish, you generally earn about 15% royalty. Versus when you self-publish, and with Amazon, you can earn anywhere from 35 to 70% royalty. 
So I was like, well, if I'm going to have to market this all by myself anyways, then I'm going to self-publish to make a lot more money. Um, and as a small-time author, you know, I had a zero following. No one knew who I was. I wasn't doing anything. I had no platform. A lot of times that's a big obstacle to getting traditionally published. They want to see that you have a platform and that you have an audience. Whereas with self-publishing, anybody can do it. So that's the reason I went with self-publishing. And are you only online or are you only on Amazon or where can you find your book? Um, the books are on Amazon. They're an ebook, paperback, and audiobook. I think they're also on Barnes and Noble online and Books a Million online. They're not in physical stores because you do have to be traditionally published to get into physical stores, but they're pretty much like anywhere you can find them online. And how do you market your book? So for Money Honey, I, well, first of all, I read this book called Published by Chandler Bolt. And it wasn't until I read Published that I finally realized, okay, I can write a book. I'm going to sit down and do this. Because Published, this it's a book called Published, it's this great guide that teaches you everything you need to know from coming up with a book idea to outlining to marketing to launching. So it was kind of this how-to guide that I referenced the entire time. And part of what Chandler Bolt talks about is having a launch team, basically a group of readers that are committed, that are interested in your book, that are in your ideal target um, audience, and that want to help you publish your book. Now, at the time, though, I did, again, I didn't have any platform. I was like, well, how am I going to build a launch team? You know, no one knows who I am. But one thing I did, not even on purposely, or not even purposely, is that I was really engaged in different Facebook groups. So I was in this Facebook group of 13,000 female millennials. It was actually focused on politics, but every now and then someone would ask a question about money and I would jump in and I would say, Hey, I'm Rachel. I'm a former financial advisor. Here's what I think. And I would take the time to write out a really helpful detailed response. And after doing that enough times, people were like really excited and they knew who I was. And so eventually someone would ask a question about money and people would tag me and they'd be like, oh, you need to ask Rachel Richards this. Like Rachel Richards is our finance guru. So I kind of became this finance guru of this group without even purposely meaning to, which is great because then when it came time um, for me to start thinking about this book and when I came up with this book idea, I went to this group and I was like, hey guys, you know, here's what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? And they were all like, Rachel, yes, you have to write this. You explain finance in such an easy way to understand. Like, please write this book. And so I had all these people that were kind of on board. And looking back, it's not like I made a formal launch team or a launch group, but that's kind of what it ended up being because these people were so emotionally invested in the success of my book and they were so eager to read it that they helped me launch and promote it and share it with their networks and make it a really big success. Did you give any incentives to your readers to give you a review or was it just organically they left you reviews? It's pretty much organic. You actually have to be really careful on Amazon um, and you're not allowed to incentivize readers in any way, even if it's like offering them a free copy of the book or you can't offer them anything basically. And if Amazon finds out you're incentivizing or offering gifts for reviews, they can take your account down. So I've always been really careful about that. I know other authors will kind of go against the guidelines and take the risk, but I'm sort of too afraid to, to try to do that. Um, so basically, I, you know, I encourage all of the people on my launch team to leave a review. 
that was one of the things I said, hey, this is going to really help me out during my launch is, you know, share the book on social media and leave me a review. And then another thing I've been really great at is one-on-one follow-up. So if anyone, if I know, you know, my friend or family read the book, I would message them individually and I'd say, hey, I, I just launched this book. Can you go on and leave me a review on Amazon? It would really help. Um, I also have a, a, like a freebie in my book, Money Honey. So I offer these free budgeting worksheets. And so when someone signs up for the freebie and they get added to my newsletter, you know, every once in a while, I'll say, you know, at the end of my new email, I'll say, P.S., have you left a review left, uh, yet for my book? If not, can you go read one? It really helps me out. So I think between those three things is the way I was able to get so many reviews. And like I said, Money Honey has close to 550 five-star reviews now. That's awesome. Thanks. And can you talk a little bit about saving? Did you have like a certain um, plan for how much money you wanted to save? How did you like determine that? Yeah, you know, something I've always wanted to do, and I don't even know where this came from, but I've always wanted to save at least 50% of my income. So even throughout college and right after college when I was making money, I was trying to find ways to save 50%. My first job, I was making 32 grand and I still saved half of that. So I was living off $16,000 a year. It was very, very cheap living. I rented a room from somebody that I didn't know who then we came, we went on to become friends. Um, I, I never went out for dinners or drinks and that's not to say I never went out. I just wouldn't buy anything. So I was just very frugal. That has served me well in the long run. Um, I really hate when financial gurus give the blanket advice, like you need to save 10% of your paycheck or you need to save 15% of your income because I think that is very general and everyone's financial situations are different. You know, for a single person making $300,000 a year as a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, maybe if she saves 15%, she'll have enough money to retire. But for a family of four living off an income of 70 grand, you know, saving 10% is just not going to cut it. That's not going to end up in enough money to retire. So everyone's situation is different. Um, I think the statistics that I heard the most recently in terms of saving for retirement is that millennials will need to accumulate at least $2 million by age 65 in order to retire. Mm -hmm. That is a ton of money, $2 million. Um, So basically the point is you have to save a lot more than you're probably currently saving and finding ways to continually increase your savings rate is one of the most important things you can do. And tell me a little bit about money mindset. How have you, have you always been in the mindset you are now? What type of work have you been doing to get to that place? Yeah, my mindset has definitely changed over the years towards the positive. So, you know, when I was in high school, um, I, my, my family was always on a strict budget. You know, we never went out to eat. We didn't go on a lot of trips. I kind of felt different from my peers because, you know, I wasn't getting a brand new car when I turned 16. And I came from this mindset of scarcity, actually. So that's what has formed a lot of my financial fears. But I felt there's not enough money. There's never going to be enough money. You know, when will I get to the point where I'm going to feel comfortable and secure? You know, is does that even exist? So it was the scarcity mindset. And over the years, as I've, you know, managed my money well and worked towards financial independence, it has flipped. So now I have this mindset of 
money feeling very abundant and it's it's easy to go out and make more money and I think having that mindset is very important because if you're coming from a scarcity mindset then you're panicked and you're desperate for money and it's hard to cling on to the money that you have but if you come from an abundance mindset and you're grateful for every dollar and you appreciate and and love every dollar and I know that sounds silly but that's really going to help foster the right relationships with your money what helped you get there to abundant mindset? Um, I would say just realizing that the past and, you know, what other people do with their money doesn't have any impact on what I do with my money. So being surrounded by people or growing up, you know, in environments where I felt like money was scarce, that's fine and that's all true. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to have to operate the same way. So having that realization, and that took a long time for me to kind of reflect on Another thing that's important is doing affirmations. Um, I don't know if you've read The Miracle Morning. It's one of my favorite books by Hal Elrod, and he talks about morning routines. And one of the things he does is he does daily affirmations. And these are statements you make to yourself to affirm what you want to become. So some of these some of these things in terms of finance could be telling yourself on a daily basis money is abundant. Money comes to me easily and effortlessly. I have more than enough money. I love and appreciate money, all those things. And again, I'm a very practical person. I know that sounds a little bit woo-woo and out there, but I've realized that I've done this in other areas of my life and it makes a difference. It changes the way that you think about things. And if you repeat that to yourself over and over and over again for days and weeks and months, even if you don't believe it when you're saying it, you will eventually believe it and it will change the way you think about money. And what have your 20s been like so far? Um, my 20s have probably been on like most people's 20s. <laughs> there was definitely a span of about three years when my husband and I were both working full time and we were acquiring real estate and managing it all on our own and I was writing books. So basically I was working 40 or 50 hours a week and then spending all of my evenings and weekends working as well. It was exhausting. I mean, I look back and I was like, this is not what a normal 20 year old does. Like this is supposed to be more fun. Would I recommend other people do that? No, not, not necessarily. We definitely got a little bit burnt out. Um, but now we're here and we're in this place of financial independence and I can truly look back and appreciate the sacrifice that I made. Cause I do think we made a really big sacrifice to kind of, give up our lives for two or three years. I mean, that's a long period of time in your twenties. Um, but it's it, now we're different from other people in their twenties, kind of on the other end. So we're able to travel. We're able to work when, where, and if we want, we can do whatever we want. We can start our work day whenever we want. So we have a lot more freedom than I think most people have at this age. And it's been very life-changing. And what advice would you give your 20 year old self? I would tell my 20-year-old self to, I would just reassure my 20-year-old self, and I would just say, it's all going to work out okay. I have always been like a type A personality, and I think I just stress about things being perfect, and I'm really hard on myself, and I have high expectations of myself, but in reality, everything works out the way it's meant to be, and you know, not everything has to be perfect. Everything is going to be fine, so that's what I would tell myself. And are there any questions that you wish I would have asked you? You know, I don't, I don't think so. This was a very, you asked great questions. Um, 
I guess if there's anything, I would say I'm definitely not perfect. I used to really idolize some of the people that I looked up to and the Dave Ramseys of the world, and I felt so and we all stumble and make mistakes as we go. I've had so many different fears and failures along the way, you know, not just imposter syndrome, but I've really battled with anxiety and and burning out and being a workaholic and making sure that I'm prioritizing the right things in terms of my health and my family and not, you know, being focused on the businesses and the money. So I would just say, you know, no one's perfect. And if I can do the things I've done, at such a young age, then I truly believe anyone else can as well. And where can people connect with you? So besides Amazon, my all my books are on Amazon. Um, my website is moneyhoneyrachel.com. And since I love passive income so much, I will offer your listeners a free download. So I have a passive income bonus kit, and it talks about all these free resources and tools that you can use when you're building passive income. It helps you determine which passive income stream to pursue first. It talks about the three deadly mistakes to avoid. So lots of fun info. So anyone can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com slash bonus to download that free gift. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening. I would love if you guys can leave me a review on iTunes and please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think it would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.